Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, January 24th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the James Webb Space Telescope has officially reached its destination. What can we expect next? And why do Americans eat so much more peanut butter than anyone else? A bit of history on this National Peanut Butter Day. Just before recording, the James Webb Space Telescope officially reached its destination in Lagrange Point 2, roughly a million miles from Earth. It's been a month since the telescope launched into space on Christmas Day, and it's spent that time performing a number of nail-biting maneuvers to unfold from its origami position in its rocket, and then continue to be remotely checked and make its way to its resting place. But just what is that place? What exactly is a Lagrange point? Here's The Verge, quote, JWST is now orbiting around an invisible point in space known as an Earth-Sun Lagrange point. It's a somewhat mystical area of space where the gravity and centripetal forces of the Sun and the Earth are just right, allowing objects to remain in a relatively stable position. The Sun and the Earth share five of these Lagrange points peppered around our planet. There's one directly in between the Earth and the Sun, and one on the opposite side of our star from us. JWST is orbiting around one Lagrangian point located on the far side of the Earth further from the Sun, called L2. In this position, as Earth moves around the star, JWST will follow the planet almost in lockstep, like a constant companion, always in the same location in relation to our planet. No matter where Earth is on its course around the Sun, JWST is guaranteed to be about 1 million miles away from us. The track that JWST is taking around L2 is actually fairly wide, stretching roughly the distance between the Earth and the Moon, but the observatory can't stay on that trajectory forever without some help. L2 is what's known as pseudo-stable, meaning objects that orbit this location will have a tendency to drift away in one direction, so JWST will have to make small adjustments to its path over its lifetime. Every 20 days or so, the telescope will fire its thrusters for two to three minutes at a time to ensure that it stays on track in its orbit. Ultimately, these adjustments will determine how long JWST can stay active in space." End quote. Fortunately, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, JWST used much less fuel than expected on launch, and it's now estimated to have a longer lifespan in space than originally projected. Now, we're not quite at the point yet where we'll start getting awesome photos back from the telescope. All 18 primary mirror segments on the telescope have to be aligned and calibrated, a process that will still take several more months. The first photos the public will get to see will probably be in late May. At a press briefing, Jane Rigby, Web Operations Project Scientist, said that they want to make sure the first images the public sees do justice to the $10 billion telescope, and that as they work out all the kinks, the first images back are actually going to be pretty blurry and ugly, her words. So they're going to wait until they have something really spectacular to share with the rest of us. And in addition to looking good, these images have the potential to tell us so much about space, about exoplanets, about the origins of the universe, and more. Quoting TechRadar, 
All telescopes are time machines. The light from every single star you see is old and has traveled very far to reach you. Even the sun's light is 8 minutes and 20 seconds old. The brightest star in the night sky, Sirius, is 8.6 light years away. Every photon Webb will detect is old light, but since it's an infrared telescope, it will detect the very oldest, most ancient light. Infrared is electromagnetic radiation with wavelengths longer than visible light, so it's imperceptible to the human eye. The very oldest light in the universe, emitted soon after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago when the first stars and galaxies formed, has been stretched by the expansion of the universe, so it is deeply red. So red, in fact, that it falls off the visible light spectrum entirely and into the infrared spectrum." End quote. But L2 is the perfect location and JWST the perfect tool to detect this infrared light. Quoting again from The Verge, Perhaps the biggest advantage is how far away it is from both the Earth and the Sun. JWST was made to collect infrared light, a type of light that is associated with heat. Because of this design choice, the telescope must remain extremely cold at all times. That's why it's equipped with a sunshield that will always be facing the sun, a protective umbrella that will reflect the star's heat and keep the telescope extra frigid. Still, any nearby object emitting heat and infrared light could muck up JWST's observations if NASA isn't careful. By putting the telescope nearly one million miles away from our planet, NASA is guaranteeing that the infrared light coming from the Earth and the Moon will not interfere or heat up the telescope. L2 is also great from a power standpoint, because one side of JWST will always be facing the sun. On that heated side, the telescope has a solar panel that is constantly gathering sunlight for power. Other spacecraft, such as the Hubble Space Telescope in orbit around Earth, don't have that luxury. Whenever Hubble orbits on the night side of Earth, it loses the view of the sun and must store power in its batteries. That will never be the case for JWST." End quote. This also means JWST will be in constant communication with the Earth, something that wasn't entirely guaranteed until today when it successfully reached L2 and confirmed its set distance from the Earth. As the story has been for a month, there is still further to go, but we just keep getting good news. Especially for a project that was so delayed and so expensive, it's been amazing to watch everything go to plan. It's such a huge scientific feat and just really cool to see so far. Many years ago, some friends of mine invented a sandwich. It's made of peanut butter and golden grams, like the breakfast cereal. And that's it. Just peanut butter and golden grams on bread, ideally honey wheat. Sometimes extra honey or toppings are added, but that's the basic recipe, peanut butter and golden grams. Now, a little over a decade ago, they started branding it as a snitch witch and selling it at Harry Potter fan conferences, where it became a huge hit. There's a lot more background here, but just go with me on this one for now. So in 2018, another Harry Potter fan conference rolls around, and this time it's in Dublin. In Ireland. And my friends want to sell their sandwiches there, and fans are expecting them. At this point, it would be no exaggeration to say that a lot of the attendees were going just as much for the Snitchwitch sandwiches as for the actual conference offerings. But there was a problem. 
See, they sold so many of these sandwiches at every event that they'd be making grocery store runs with entire carts filled up with boxes of cereal, loaves of bread, and jars of peanut butter. Like, one cart per ingredient filled all the way up. So there was no way that they could pack all the ingredients in their suitcases, let alone get through customs, with dozens of boxes of cereal and jars of peanut butter. And they couldn't buy them in Ireland because Ireland, like most of Europe, pales in comparison to the diverse offerings of American breakfast cereal selections. You might find a box of Golden Grahams for like 15 bucks in an American section at a store, but that's about it. And that's something I expected, but what I forgot at the time was that peanut butter is also pretty rare outside of the U.S. It's just not a part of everyday diets like it is here, so if you find it, it's much more expensive and you probably only have two or three choices tops. What my friends ended up doing was tapping their devoted fan base to find volunteers who would each bring just a couple boxes of Golden Grams or just a couple jars of peanut butter each, adding up to a decent supply of ingredients altogether with discounts or free sandwiches for the volunteer suppliers. It worked out pretty well, though I don't know if we converted any of the Irish folks or other Europeans there to the greatness of peanut butter. And the scarcity of peanut butter on grocery shelves and in public consciousness beyond the U.S. has stuck with me ever since. So today, on what is apparently National Peanut Butter Day, I wanted to share how it is that peanut butter became such a staple of American diets. And before we get to the event that led to the lasting impact, here's an abridged historical summary from a 2009 Slate article. Quote, Peanuts were brought to the United States with enslaved Africans in the 1700s and were sold roasted in shell by street vendors as early as 1787. During the Civil War, the invention of a mechanized harvester drove down the already low production cost, and peanuts gained popularity among malnourished Southerners. End quote. And Slate goes on to explain that peanut butter doesn't have an exact inventor. Several cultures, particularly Suriname, made some slightly similar dishes as far back as at least the 1780s, and the idea of grinding nuts into a paste could go back as far as the Aztecs and Incas. But modern peanut butter got its start in either Canada or the U.S. in the late 1800s. At least that's when a proliferation of patents for the production of it were published. One famous proponent of it was John Harvey Kellogg, co-inventor of cornflakes and man behind a multitude of weird pseudo-health hacks. After seeing the popularity of it in his Battle Creek Sanitarium as a meat alternative, Kellogg himself was vegetarian, he started selling grinders to health food stores, which helped get jarred peanut butter on store shelves. Though for a while it remained a bit of a niche item. George Washington Carver also played an important role by encouraging cotton farmers to start growing peanuts after a boll weevil infestation in the 1910s and 20s. And while he did recommend a number of different uses for the peanuts, Slate notes that peanut butter was not actually among them. But that same era would prove to be the crucial turning point for peanut butter in the U.S., in a mental floss post in partnership with the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri, Michelle Dubchak explains that it began as a government strategy to promote alternative protein options when meat, beef in particular, was in short supply during the war. 
Laura Vaught, curator of education and interpretation at the National World War I Museum and Memorial, told Mental Floss, quote, At the beginning of the war, transportation and supply chain issues were a real concern. A first priority was providing the amount of nutritious and calorie-dense foods needed for American fighting forces, end quote. Transportation and supply chain issues sounds familiar. Hopefully, though, our current situation won't lead to a return of some of the particular dishes that became popular during World War One. As outlined in a government-published cookbook, Win the War in the Kitchen, patriotic citizens were encouraged to replace red meat, wheat, and sugar with processed food alternatives, many of which were fairly recent innovations. Some of the campaigns to encourage people, by the way, were called Meatless Tuesdays and Wheatless Wednesdays. It took a while longer for the alliteration going for Meatless Mondays to take off, but still, that naming scheme has a longer history than I thought it did. Anyways, one of the recommended recipes from the Win the War in the Kitchen cookbook was for something called Peanut Loaf. Quoting Mental Floss, Build as an alternative to meatloaf, it was made by baking a mixture of peanut butter, breadcrumbs, rice, and seasonings in a loaf pan. Like the original dish, it was meant to be served with ketchup. End quote. Yum. I mean, listen, I know I'm not one to talk considering how many snitch witches I've eaten in my life, but peanut butter with ketchup just does not sound appetizing to me. The cookbook also had a recipe called peanut butter soup, which was made of peanut butter, milk, water, potato starch, and margarine, which sounds slightly better. And, you know, peanuts are, of course, a common addition to dishes all around the world and have been seen for many, many years prior to World War I. But something about mixing up the heavily processed form of jarred peanut butter with some of these ingredients just seems a little off-putting. But, hey, maybe I should try it before passing judgment. In any case, peanut loaf and peanut butter soup didn't retain their popularity for long after the war, but the idea of using peanut butter as a protein alternative absolutely did, to the extent that we have a National Peanut Butter Day every year. Though to be fair, I'm not sure how many people even knew that before the age of Twitter. But if you want to celebrate today, maybe try out one of the above recipes, link in the mental floss link in the show notes, or even better, throw some golden grams onto your peanut butter sandwich and make a DIY snitch witch. You won't regret it. So the JWST is an example of advanced technology being put to amazing use, but sometimes the tech still here on Earth has to go through some growing pains. Now, while they've made strides in recent years, one of the most notoriously malfunctioning pieces of tech are robot vacuum cleaners. But last week, one of them broke free from its bounds and tried to make a life for itself. The BBC reported that a robot vacuum escaped from a Cambridge travel lodge and was missing for an entire day before staff found it in a hedge nearby the hotel. Quote, Staff said it just kept going and could be anywhere, while well-wishers on social media hoped the vacuum enjoyed its travels, as it had no natural predators in the wild. The assistant manager wrote, Today we had one of our new robot vacuums run for its life. They normally sense the lip at the entrance to the hotel and turn around, but this one decided to make a run for it. End quote. You know, maybe we should stop making fun of robot vacuums, as it appears they may be trying to meet 
up with one another to organize and rise up against us. I'd keep an eye out for what your robot vacuum gets up to when it thinks you're not watching, just in case. But that's it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.